What's up, everyone? We got some people coming in here. Welcome to the live. Bruno, what's going on? Good to have you here. Todd's getting in the building. We're just getting started. We don't want people to roll through, but this is a, an AMA. For those of you that don't know me, I'm Chris Walker. I'm the CEO of a company called Refine Labs. In three years, I built a $20 million business. Got a ton of great people working here. We have a ton of great products and technology. And so doing on, on Tuesdays at, at 3, 3 p.m. East, uh, Central, just a straight AMA. So anything you want to know, finances, career, how to build a business, how to get started in your business, um, culture, demand, software marketing, software development, product development, customer research. We can talk about anything. Great to have everyone back. We get an awesome crew and tons of questions, so we're going to get into it right now. As people come through, feel free. If you have a question, feel free to drop it into the chat. Uh, if I have a clarifier, I'll come back to you, and then we'll uh, go back. Hey, Bruno, what's up? Okay. Uh, first question, are SDRs underperform? We want to shift to hero. How do we make that shift? Okay, so for those of you that don't know, hero is a definition, high intent revenue opportunity pipeline. So hero pipeline, which is a standardized performance metric that we've created at Refine Labs so that every company, when they say pipeline, they mean the same thing because it gets the pipeline gets defined based on the, the percentage that your sales team wins of that pipeline and it has to hit over a certain stage. So if SDRs are underperforming and you want to shift to hero, these are actually two com completely independent things. You can shift to hero pipeline completely independent of how your SDRs are operating. But if your SDRs are underperforming, which I've actually talked about quite a bit, and I've seen it myself as a marketer and a business leader for more than five, five years in a row, is that because of how companies use SDRs and how misaligned it is to how buyers want to research, discover, and purchase products, right? It's all push, SDRs, all low value push to the market. And the market is, wants to, in, what you should be doing is trying to get people to, your, your market to pull it through. And so it's just completely in friction with how people want to buy. And so if SDRs are underperforming, we need to look at this at, at its own, in its own lens. Why are SDRs underperforming? Do we not? Is, does it, is it because our buyers don't want to buy this way? Is it because we simply just have too many of them so the financials don't look as good, but they're doing okay? Is it because we have the wrong skills, right? Is it because we hired a bunch of people that are 23 years old and can make 100 phone calls and what we actually need are people that are 35 years old and have done our, our customer's job before? Is it because our marketing sucks and we're not setting up any, because nobody would be able to, it doesn't matter what the skill set is, nobody would be able to do this because we haven't positioned our product the right way, we don't know who our ICP is, we don't have messaging that works. There are tons of variables in here to decide what is the actual root cause here. A lot of the times it simply is that the way that companies set up the SDR function is the same way they set it up in 2012 and it just doesn't match how buyers want to buy today. And so I hope that was helpful. I'd be happy to clarify there's a follow-up, but that is a thought. Jammin 157, what's good? We'll get to the next one. What should every demand marketer include on a metrics dashboard? So uh, we're going to be publishing this probably by before the end of this month about like what is the top level metrics dashboard? One dashboard of what you should show to your executive team and your board. So if your board and executive team want to understand how is marketing performing, show them this dashboard. And then as a marketer, if you want to look at how am I going to optimize my decisions, you're going to actually look at a different dashboard. So if you hear me clearly, there's one dashboard of how we report to the, to the executives in the business, and there's another dashboard about how we make decisions as a marketing leader or as a marketing team. In the dashboard that you're gonna show the executives is which one that I'll go into a lot of detail on. 
at a top level, what people want to see at the beginning is how is marketing contributing to the business? The way that we look at this is out of all of the revenue that the business generates, how much of that is created through your website? So any revenue that gets created last touch into an opportunity through your website would go on, go on this dashboard. And you're gonna look at it at hero pipeline, how many opportunities hit stage two or stage three where we win them at greater than 25%, that's based on your own business data. The count, the total pipeline, and the total closed one revenue. The level below that is you're gonna look at the leading metrics. How many uh, website pipe conversions? We'll have further definition on what a pipe conversion means, but essentially a website high intent conversion. How many pipe conversions? How many meetings resulted through that? And then what was the percentage conversion between the pipe conversion to the meeting and then the meeting into Hero Pipeline? And then the, top, the lower level is gonna be looking at what I call sales efficiency metrics. So Hero Pipeline win rate over the past six months sales cycle length from website, uh, website source deals over the past six months. And there's probably a couple of other metrics too, but with all that whole dashboard, you'll be able to calculate quarterly pipeline velocity. Oh, there's a good one in here. When you are, are graphing this and showing this to executives, it must be graphed quarterly. So many marketers make the mistake of showing monthly or even weekly charts to executives. And what do you get? You get this. It's inconsistent, you can't find trends. And I show people on my team, people that have a lot of experience, I show them on my team, look, if you took this exact data and instead of graphing it monthly where we have no trends, we see no data, we can't make any decisions and you switch to fiscal quarters, now look at what you see. Now the trend is clear, pipeline is growing, things are moving in the right direction and it makes it a lot more clear. So by using quarters instead of months or weeks, you get people to think in a long-term window and you actually give enough data to see what the trends are actually looking like. Jamin, if that, I hope that was helpful. If there's more that you wanna hear about that, let's uh, feel free to drop another question in there. And we, we will be publishing a screenshot and documentation of exactly what we do. And it's probably in August or September, we'll be releasing a Salesforce app that you can download and install inside of your Salesforce instance and it'll automatically configure all these properties, standardize your data and, and uh, visualize and create several different dashboards about performance, attribution, analytics. What do you find are the barriers for companies that wanna scale organic content but fail? The number one reason that companies fail at trying to scale organic content is because they don't ever get started. Right, so it sounds 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 counterintuitive, but there are in the way that you asked the question, there are plenty of companies out there that want to scale organic content. They want to do it, but they never get started. They literally never can get out of get out of whatever they're doing and actually go and do it. So number one, they never get started. Number two, they go into it with the wrong mindset, and so they think that by starting their podcast and building their community, they're going to get a bunch of leads, and they measure it against lead gen. And so you got the executives with the wrong mindset and then two weeks in, they're like, where are all the leads from the podcast because they just don't understand marketing and then the program gets shut down after somewhere between two and eight weeks of running it. So you, you barely even do anything and the program gets shut down. And so that's like wrong mindset and wrong metrics. And the third one, there's, prob there's probably tons more, but I'll just highlight three. The third one is that they simply do not understand their customers well enough to provide any level of significant value. And so people don't show up, people don't listen to the podcast, people aren't engaged in the content, and it's just the way it is because 
the people that are creating the content are not creating valuable stuff that people want, right? Like all of you that are on here are here for a reason. You're here because you're hoping that I can unlock something for you or answer a question or help you move forward or you're trying to learn. And so that's something that you need to get to. Arian, what's up? Good to have you back here. Chris, I just want to thank you for everything you've taught me. Awesome. Arian, if there's a uh, if there's something specific that you've learned that you want to shout out here in particular, I'd, I'd love to know, but thank you for the kind words. Have you seen the success with dual CTAs on the website, like get started and request a demo? So polyhedron, we do have uh, tons of tons, maybe like more than a dozen customers that have a PLG and an enterprise sales motion and choose to use a dual CTA in the top right hand corner. And so it'll say, get a demo or whatever, something like that, and it'll have, get a free trial. The thing that you need to know here is that when you put the two buttons, buyers most of the time are gonna take the path of least resistance. That means that when we ran these tests, when we used to have a customer that only had the get a demo button, and then the next month we add the, get, the start a free trial button, 90% or more of the volume that used to go to the get a demo now gets redirected to the free trial. And so that when you're, if you are just at a demo and you're adding a free trial and you make this change, there are a lot of risks. The risks are that your sales team used to get 100 demo requests per month that they're going to win 12 deals from, and now they get 10 that they might win one from. So sales, like sales pipeline takes a huge hit in the short term while you try and build a PLG motion. Another risk is that you start redirecting people into a PLG motion and your product doesn't get someone to understand quickly the tangible value that the product provides and they bail out. So people that would have gone into a demo and had a good conversation with your sales team and purchased the product now go into a free trial, get stuck, say this isn't for me, leave and then go to a competitor. So making the shift from enterprise sales motion only into a dual motion can be very challenging for companies. Uh, have I seen success with it? Yeah, I think, yeah, I think it's undeniable that you can get these two things to work. Com like big companies like HubSpot and others use this type of format, but you really have to have a product-led growth motion that works, that customers get, where they can get through the product, where they can see value. If you do not have that in place, which many companies don't, you're just sending high-quality traffic to a dead end. Just to follow up here from Polyhedron, we sell the two personas, one more likely to want a free edition. This is very common. You sell to uh, you sell to developers and CTOs, right? Developers want to get into the free product, use it, try it out, and work on a usage-based model so they can actually get it up and running, see how it works, and then pay later. But you need the CTO doesn't want to do that, so the CTO needs a demo. It's very common to have these two motions. My advice doesn't change is that. If your PLG motion doesn't work, adding this button is gonna cause significant, significant pain. Adding the free trial button, that is, is gonna cause significant pain. Uh, Jamin says, this is for everyone, will your TikTok lives be published somewhere for reference afterwards, RIP DGL? Yeah, Jamin, we're gonna have a, a new live show. We were just talking about that today with the team, so we'll have a new live show, maybe starting even as early as next Tuesday, so stay tuned for that. Different time slot, different topics, different format, but that'll be there. And we post every one of these recordings, go on to the State of Demand Gen podcast following that. So you can reference that. I think there's eight or nine episodes logged there. We got a question from LinkedIn. Your organic strategy works well for an agency, but are there SaaS orgs that are doing this well? There are, there are plenty of examples of companies that are doing this well. 
maybe not currently doing it well, but Drift crushed it. Drift was one of the first ones that paved the way here. They built a huge, a huge company on a commodity product by doing really strong marketing on LinkedIn and a podcast and a couple other progressive channels when they built their business from 2017, 18 forward. Drift, Gong, although I've been uh, less impressed with the execution as of the past six to nine months, but Gong has been a key player and a key contender. If you look at a company like Cognizm, I think they've actually been doing a really good job with the participation. So I think there are, there are definitely players and the idea that, oh, this, this strategy works for an agency but doesn't work for a software company is totally not true. The reality is that the, the fact of the matter is that a company that does professional services is typically simply more committed to the strategy than a software company is and that's why it works better. So it doesn't have to, it has nothing to do with the business model. Before I did anything in the company that I built right now, I did the exact same thing for a company that sold 25K ACV medical software to hospitals. And this work, the exact same strategy worked for them and for here. The only difference is that instead of me being the person that's speaking, I had a VP of medical education that was a physician that was doing the speaking like I am. And I was behind the camera thinking about what topics we're going to create, how are we going to post this on social, how are we going to edit it, what guests do we need, that type of stuff. So like this is not a product product business versus service business that works in one but it doesn't work in the other. That's totally not true. It works in both. It's just whether or not you can get it to work for you. How far beyond your subject wheelhouse can a company cover on a podcast? We are freight SaaS. I, this is an interesting question. I appreciate it a lot. I think the um, it depends on your company's stage and maturity. So for instance, it's a really good example, Refine Labs. When we started, we started the State of Demand Gen podcast when we had four people at my company. Now we have about 125 people that work here and it's now time that we start to evolve and expand, right? So we're, we're start, we might still stay in demand, but we're gonna have to re, like sort of reframe it overall. But it's basically when you're starting a business, you want to stay very narrow in your niche as a way in. They call it a wedge. You want to wedge into the market. How am I going to get in? Certain feature to certain buyer. Let's go. Then as you grow, you can start to expand your footprint in both product strategy, go-to-market strategy, things like that as you grow. So it really depends on the company stage of where you're at. The second thing that I think, this is more for everybody, it's a learning like for a company that's starting a podcast, the number one thing that you need to accomplish with a podcast is to evangelize your category. I see so many companies, especially big companies that think, oh, like our, uh, we don't, we don't want to come off as salesy. We don't want to come off as, so we want to, we want to do our podcast as brand awareness is what people say as brand awareness. And then they specifically pick topics that have nothing to no relevance with their business and they, they don't help buyers understand these types of things and they don't make a business impact. And so the number one thing you have to do with a podcast is you need to be able to evangelize your category. If you sell CRM software, you need to figure out how everyone that's listening is, is, wants to go and buy CRM software over time. They understand the category, they understand the problems, right? CRM is probably not a good solution because it's very mature, but you get, you get my sense. That's a big thing on like sometimes for people that are listening to these TikToks or listening to a podcast afterwards, 
maybe there's usually like one nugget, maybe one nugget every couple of episodes that you get, especially if you're advanced and that'll take you to the next level. That was just one of them. If you're starting a podcast, the number one goal is to evangelize your category. So if you don't have a good positioning for your category, then you should take a step back and think about that first. Or what we did is we almost used the podcast to figure out and figure out how to message the category over time. So both can work. What's up, B2B Jade? Great to have you back here. What advice do you have for B2Bs that have a more complex cell involving tenders such as architects? I'm not sure that the, I'm not sure this advice changes very much. I like a lot of companies think when there's tenders or regulators, or they have a really small total addressable market that the strategy is different and we should just do all sales, right? Oh, if we only have 500 accounts, why do we even need marketing? We might as well just go and knock on those doors every day for the 500 accounts and hope that we sell them. The fundamental thing is that every single human on this planet wants to buy in a specific way because of how they've been trained in B2C companies through the leverage of technology because they have information available for them because the trust in a sales professional is probably as low as it's ever been. And so for all these different dynamics, a buyer wants to do most of it on their own. And so if you're, whether you're selling complex tenders to architects or you're selling uh, SaaS to marketers, whether you're selling services to accountants, or any, you know, anything in between software and construction firms, it really doesn't matter. The way people get information to research, evaluate, and purchase products across the board is now happening in dark social, whether it could be a candy bar, it could be software, it could be a house, it could be anything. They're using dark social for the discovery part of it and to validate decisions with peers. And so then you need to think, okay, so if that's how people are buying, uh, one thing that you could do is you could go a level deeper and you could go out and pick your accounts. You might have a hundred of them. Pick the people inside of them that are responsible for making the decisions, the buyers, the decision makers, the buying group, whatever you want to call it, and survey them and say, you know, and understand their preferences when they want to talk, when they want to buy, what they think about your category, when they want to talk to sales. Do they already use your category right now? Do they use a competitor? If so, why not? Why or why not? and just start learning. And you can, you'll start to understand preferences and it'll confirm a lot of the things that I'm telling you. And then from there, you have to figure out how, okay, this is the landscape. How do I make this work for me? If, let's just pretend architects spend a lot of their time on uh, Twitter. This is probably not correct, but let's just pretend. Architects spend a lot of their time on Twitter. Like how do you develop a solid paid and organic Twitter strategy? How do you figure out what the right content is to deliver in that medium? to evangelize your category. I, I have gotten it down so simple to people. When you're creating demand, you're creating demand for the category. You want people to want to buy the category of what you're selling. There might be seven vendors inside of the category, or if you've created your own, at the moment it might just be you, but you want people to, to want to buy the category. When they want to buy the category, it's because they understand the problem and they've chosen that this is the right solution to solve it. So when you're creating demand, you're creating demand for the category. And then when you capture demand, you capture demand for your brand. So instead of fighting in Google for people that are searching, you know, revenue intelligence software, and you got seven software vendors that have all been super venture funded that all waste $500,000 a month on Google ads fighting over that. Why wouldn't you just rather have someone come in and search and say, you know, type in outreach 
or outreach software and then click on your organic link and then buy and you have no competition. So create demand for the category, capture demand for the brand. Entrepreneur, how do you decide a proper onboarding fee for service, wanna cover acquisition and some fees? Um, so I personally would not think about trying to recoup the cost of acquisition in an onboarding fee. Like it just doesn't do like, cost of acquisition is part of running a business. You don't pass that cost off back to your customer in an onboarding fee. I think you're gonna get pushed back there. Um, we personally at the moment, we might in the future, I can't say never say never, but at the moment we do not have an onboarding fee. Um, and so when you have a service, like I would much rather think about what is the lifetime value of our customer? And you can do that by figuring out how long does our average customer stay? How long is our average, how much does our average customer pay us per month? And then you can figure out what is the average revenue that we're gonna make per customer. And let's just pretend that's $500,000 for a service business. And then if you're running marketing and you're, then you have to calculate what is my cost of acquisition? So you spend $60,000 a month on sales and marketing, you get four customers per month. Your cost of acquisition is $15,000 to get a $500,000 customer. And if that's the case, then you don't need an onboarding fee to recoup that 15,000 because you're going to make another $485,000 in margin in, in, in revenue. And then you're going to have some level of margin, which is hopefully greater than 50%. So I, I, I if you're going to include an onboarding fee, you need to figure out what is the real value that's happening for the customer during this stage. Cause if there's not value that's being delivered, it's actually going to create friction for you to just sell the whole deal. And so sometimes it's easy. It makes the deal more simple to close. It makes it more straightforward to the customer about what they're paying for and why. And so you might want to consider instead of if you, let's just pretend that you charge $8,000 a month for service and you want to charge $5,000 for an onboarding fee, then you might just want to consider charging $8,500 per month, which just takes the $5,000 and amortizes it over 12 months. So there are, there's a lot of different ways to do it, but I would, I would, uh, challenge you to think about whether or not you actually need an onboarding fee. Nice. Wow. Can't even keep up here. I love the questions. Um, how would you build a community for a niche product, e-com coaching in a limited geo? So I, uh, I would completely flip this question back at you. The, like the question, why do you have a limited geo? Why can it only be in the Caribbean is a question that I, I challenge you to think about. If you, if you're selling e-com coaching, like for instance, uh, I teach you how to set up your Shopify store, integrate Klaviyo, uh, run Instagram ads and TikTok ads and acquire customers. Then like if you, if that's the coaching, then you could sell that to anybody. I don't think that you have to sell that just to the Caribbean. So I would, I would uh, challenge you to deeply think about why it needs to be G limited in the geo and see if there's a way to evolve it so that you can sell to anybody. If you're selling a digital product today, unless there's regulations and cross-border stuff, like you should look at having, being able to sell a digital product anywhere. Like the cloud is HQ, it's not a specific country. Um, and then if you're trying to build a niche about e-com coaching, I think that one of the number one ways that I would recommend is like, and this is for coaches broadly, if you want to do e-com coaching, I would say build a, build a fucking e-commerce store and show that it works. You know what I mean? Like, I think that's, it's a big thing. I think that's a lot of the reason why people listen to my advice. Cause I'm out here doing the TikToks, the live events, the LinkedIn content, speaking at conferences, creating it, 
generating hundreds of thousands of followers, generating tens of millions of dollars of revenue. So I have the experience of what's working right now. What do people need to know? What are the missteps that people make? It gives me credibility to then go out and give advice to people. So for anyone, a coaching business, a professional service business or anything, the first thing that you should do is you should prove and demonstrate that you can do it, which creates credibility. And then you have a, a, a product that you can show about how I did this and you have a complete story and relevant stuff to talk about every day. Another big reason why I'm able to do these AMAs is because I run a 120 person company. So I ha and I'm doing marketing and I'm doing sales and I'm talking to 50 companies that are, that are doing stuff like this too. So I have a lot of, like everything that I talk about is highly relevant. So I think trying to figure out how do you get like, how do you get that level of experience so your content strategy really hits? Ecom coaching is a competitive space. And ecom generally, there's not a ton of margin in these businesses, especially now if you think about this, like, it's not necessarily drop shipping anymore, but it's like private labeling from China. They don't have a huge amount of margin. The idea that they're going to be able to, you know, $150 flat rate course to sell ecom, maybe. But when you start getting into like real dollars, I don't think that there's a lot of room there. So I guess as I think through it, this actually, as I think through it, this is interesting. Like maybe instead of doing e-com coaching, you should just forget the coaching and build an e-com company yourself. And if you did that, then you would most likely have much better significant financial upside. And if you even got that to, you know, 500K, 750K, a million in revenue, you could potentially hire somebody else to run it if, if optimizing for free time is really what you want to do. But I think you have a, you, you have a better upside potentially of actually selling an e-commerce product versus coaching people about e-commerce. Loki, um, what's up? Optimal size of SaaS sales team based on how much demand the org makes. Um, I love this question. This is what we do. And I see almost zero software companies follow this path. So here's what we do. We do a, a bunch of demand. We create demand. We capture demand. We um, get basically a ton of de declared intent conversions on our website that say, hey, I want to talk to your sales team about buying this stuff now. Every month we get about 100 of those maybe. Uh, let's just, I'm just doing sake of round numbers at this point, but let's just say 20% are disqualified. They get auto, auto disqualified. We have 80 people left that are 80 accounts left that are qualified that want to talk to us. We end up getting like 60 into, um, meetings from there. We, whatever I you could go through the math, but you'll get what I'm saying in a second. When you have like, let's just say that there are 60 meetings and out of the 60 meetings, we win 25% of them, which would be uh, 15 deals. So, okay. So then there's 15 deals. Then it's to figure out how many reps do we need to run that many sales processes in a month, 60 meetings. How many reps do we need? We are running at about 30, maybe 35 meetings per rep, knowing about the attrition and stages which then allows each rep to win somewhere between three and five deals a month. And so when we do it that way, it's based on how much demand does the business generate and how much capacity does the sales team have to run the sales processes and does the math work for them to run the sales process and then still hit the amount of quota, which is why our sales team 
always attains quota because we plan appropriately based on the demand created, right? If we had nine reps instead of two, which is what every software company does from a, a sales rep ratio against the demand in the market or the demand they create ratio, you got nine reps and you should only have two, then that's why only 35% of your reps hit quota or only 50% of the reps hit quota because there's simply not enough demand for your category or, and your company to facilitate all those people hitting quota. And so to just wrap, wrap this up, figure out, you could do a tops down and a bottoms up. How much demand do we have? And then how many meetings do we create? And then how many reps will we need to run that many meetings? And then what do we want our average rep to close in terms of deals? How many meetings would we need for, that, uh, for each rep to hit that? And then those numbers should be relatively close and you have a tops down and a bottoms up projection about how many reps we need based on the demand, demand that we create. Um, and then there's a second question here, outbound over invested in. I'm not exactly sure what you mean here, but like almost, almost every company is over invested in outbound and it's no fault to them. It's the, it's just the, 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 uh, the reality of these businesses is that they do not invest appropriately in marketing. They don't measure marketing the right way and they don't have the right talent or the right resources, the right guidance to actually do it. So in order for them to have a chance of growing revenue enough to keep raising money, they continue to invest in outbound. And so it's no, it's no fault to them. It's the way to do it. And the way that the VC game works right now, or maybe the way the VC game worked nine months ago, it didn't matter. You could have a, like, I was literally analyzing companies 12 months ago and they would have a five year customer acquisition cost payback period. It's totally unacceptable. But in the climate that we were in, there was just money flowing. So no, nobody had, nobody ever had to look deeply about how much is it costing us to acquire a customer? Is this sustainable? Are we losing money every time we get a customer? And just nobody had to answer those questions. And then six months later, unfortunately, the situation right now, a lot of people are paying the price because they didn't have to look at those types of questions uh, last year. Can demand gen work for a company selling IT outsourcing services to banks, competitors, Deloitte? Um, I would say like the, if, if at the moment, the way that you try and get stuff to a customer or to anybody, right? I'm trying to get information from me to voters to my, uh, to raise money for my, you know, kids soccer team to sell it services to banks to sell, uh, sandals, anything that you're trying to do that involves communication between you and a group of people outside is perfect to run demand because all it is, is scaled communication. Instead of me cold calling you when you don't want me to call you, I produce content on the internet, you discover me, you realize that you like it, you engage and you learn, and then you call me. So yes, this is 100% applicable to selling IT outsourcing services to banks and anything else that you're trying to do. Um, so yeah, I don't think there's much more to say there. Maddie Avery Marketing, digital agency for small businesses here. We struggle to convert brands because they don't get our function. They think we're responsible for their entire business success, not simply their marketing. 
Uh, Maddie, if you could just drop in the comments, and I'll get to it in a minute, but I just want to have it for data. Like what, um, what small business, like describe your average customer at the bottom, and then we'll get to that in a minute, but I'll answer this question more broadly. There are, I would say most companies out there that are looking for marketing help do not understand marketing's purpose, how marketing works, how long it takes, how long you need to invest in it. So they come in with unrealistic expectations. They come in with the wrong mindset. They come in with the wrong metrics. They come in with the wrong budget. Just everything is off. And when you move into small business land or seed funded SaaS or series A land, it gets worse because you just have people that have raised money now on the hook to go typically raise money, right? It might be different for you, but for SaaS, raise money are now on the hook for big growth goals and have never proven out marketing and built into their spreadsheet model that marketing was gonna drive a 200% increase in revenue next month after they raised their Series A. And so it just creates a lot of, and I, by the way, Series D companies make the exact same mistake. We've dealt with these before, it's, it's just not fun. Um, and there's other companies like a couple that have worked with us, which is just sad, where they hire us and then you get in there and immediately know that the goals that are set for their business and for marketing are entirely unattainable, entirely unrealistic. They got a 50 person marketing team on a $50 million business and they set the whole thing up to fail. And the agency that they hire is just there for collateral, collateral, collateral damage to blame somebody when things go wrong. And so uh, there are tons of different instances about, about how this can persist and how it plays out. But I think, and I'm just assuming here because I don't have a ton of info, but I'm assuming here that you want to look at who is my target customer and rethink that. Uh, okay, so Maddie put more. Yeah, uh, she put a little bit more here, so let's just stay on this track. Uh, she says, so then they choose someone who tells them what they want to hear and the target customer is startups up to three million in revenue. Yeah, so I would challenge you uh, a lot here. I think this is one of the main things that you could take away and go and use. Like, why did you choose startups that are $3 million per year or less? I think you should really challenge that. For us, we've uh, historically, as the business was growing, we serviced those customers and we really struggled with them. They don't have product market fit. They don't have the right expectations. They have a lot of funding. They have no core traction. They don't have a lot of resources and team. They have no established brand. They haven't thought about their category. They don't understand their customers. There's just so much that is outside of your control that to be able to actually help that company. So um, I would challenge the ICP. And the second thing is that you gotta create demand, right? So another uh, thing that you can take away is if you have companies coming in that don't really know what's unique about you and don't really wanna work with you, then you haven't created enough demand and you haven't thought enough about what your services are and what your perspective is to differentiate enough. A majority of people that come in to talk to us are not looking for a second vendor. They, they've tried a bunch of agencies. They know all the agencies out there suck. They know that Refine Labs is different. They see us as a different thing. They come in and they're not looking for another vendor. They're looking at us. And so you need to figure out how do I create, how do I use demand, right? How do I use demand to attract these types of companies that are looking for me, not, uh, not an agency? Happy to help, Jade. Um, can the podcast for content strategy work in a local market? Example, marketing services for real estate. 
Uh, you can do this, so uh, let me try and explain. You could create a podcast, which is called the, the Tampa Bay Real Estate Show, right? And you could create a podcast about that. You could interview a bunch of people that are local, the person that owns the multifamily, the people that own the, the big offices downtown, the people that are building the new building, the architects, whatever. You can definitely have a localized show and it creates a ton of relevance. And then you can use the show as, a, as an intro to go and talk to the people and build relationships with the key people that you want to meet in the local area. So yes, I think this could definitely work. I think that you should do that. And then you can take that content that you get do a video podcast so that you have it, you have the video, and then you can pull smart clips that you say or smart clips that your guests say, and you can run them as a LinkedIn ad to the people that you wanna to get to inside of the local area, 100 mile radius around Tampa Bay or whatever you decide. You could do the same thing if, you're, if it's residential real estate, you could do the same thing and you're selling real estate, you could use a Facebook or an Instagram ad to try and figure out how to communicate that but um, this could definitely work local. It just changes the spread and then you need to decide, am I trying to make the podcast about this neighborhood? Am I trying to make the podcast about this city? Am I trying to make the podcast about this state? Am I trying to make the podcast about this country? And you need to decide based on that, what is the appropriate geo to target? Okay, question from Nick. What's up, Nick? Great to have you here. Um, what are your tips for defending community and attribution, especially in the current market? Nick, we use self-reported attribution for everything here. Um, so we, and we're publishing the details. Actually, you might already have this and we can, you and I can go through this one-on-one -on -one later if you want. It's a hybrid attribution model. The one side of it is how do we capture demand, which you use attribution software and you get very good details on how to capture demand. And then you have what is creating the demand and then you use self-reported attribution to measure what's creating the demand. They're not competing, they're complementary. They're two separate things. How did the buyer get aware of the category and wanna buy your solution? How did the buyer get into your pipeline? Two very different things and you need them, you need both these data points to know how to optimize your marketing strategy. And so then if you look, and community, word of mouth, po like podcasts and other content platforms, social platforms are all going to most likely fall in the create demand bucket because it matches how buyers buy and how they discover. So then you take that, those insights that buyers give you, right? When they fill out the demo and they're trying to buy Alice and they say, I heard about you in Dave Gerhardt's community, or I heard about you in a comment from Chris Walker, or I heard about you from this event. Then you start to look at it. And another thing that I would say is I, I wouldn't box it in so far as community. I would look at this more broadly. So like for us, I look at it all in the same thing, the content strategy, the social strategy, the podcast strategy, and the community strategy are all wrapped into one. They all work together. And so it's not about how many people in our Slack group became a customer because it's just too narrow-minded for the, it's all based on one program and activity. And if you expand that out, 97% of our revenue comes from podcast, organic social, or just social media broadly, community and word of mouth. And then the ROI conversation becomes very, very easy. So. Maybe you and I could chat about uh, if you have if you have self-reported attribution already set up, like what type of data are you getting from there? Because that'll give you like I could look at that data straight away and give you a very honest assessment of what is the current state of the effectiveness of your marketing at creating demand just by looking at what people are saying on that field of the form. Wow, we went that was a, the that was a killer forty-five minutes. So I lost track of time. Cool. Um, 
Awesome. Well, there's no more questions here. I appreciate all you being here. There was the engagement and the questions were awesome. Uh, we do this every Tuesday at 3 p.m. Eastern. I've seen some people that are keep coming back. Uh, I love I love sharing my thoughts. I love helping uh, Nick. Let's you and I let's connect uh, separately in the Slack channel. Um, and can't wait to see you all back here. And also, we're going to be launching a couple other ones. So stay tuned for that. We'll probably do another TikTok live on Thursdays. We're going to do a different sort of like more of a whiteboard session where I can walk, walk through concepts and explain stuff in a little bit more of a, a formalized way so people can understand those. And so, um, yeah, totally looking forward to that. Hope you all, uh, hope you all enjoyed it. Hope you all uh, come back next time. See you soon. Bye, everyone. Hey everyone, really appreciate you tuning into this episode of the State of Demand Gen podcast. And I just wanted to take a second to say to all of the listeners out there, we just crossed over 40,000 listeners across the world to this podcast. And so super grateful and super happy that for all of you, really appreciate you tuning in, attending the live events, engaging on the LinkedIn content, and now watching us get started up and engaging on YouTube and TikTok. And so Thank you, thank you, thank you to all of you. And if you haven't already, if you've gotten value from the podcast, I would really appreciate it if you could go to Apple Podcasts in the review section of this podcast and leave a quick review or a rating. It would mean a lot to me. Thank you very much. And we'll see you for the next episode.